0: Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys.
1: How do we reach a million women and children in the arid lands, those that are most vulnerable primarily to drought and famine in the face of climate change? How do we build the resilience of those people so that the next drought, they're going to survive? And that's what drives us. If I think if I had thought bigger sooner, I think if I had focused less on overhead and more on attracting the best and brightest minds to this work, that some of those challenges would have been less sooner.
0: I'm very pleased today to introduce Kathleen Colson, co-founder and CEO of the BOMA Project. The BOMA Project is a US non-profit and Kenyan NGO committed to alleviating poverty and building resiliency in the dry lands of Africa. BOMA operates a rural entrepreneurial access project that helps women to graduate from extreme poverty by giving them the tools they need to start small businesses in their communities. Earlier this year BOMA was among a select group of 19 winners chosen from over 1700 applicants worldwide for a prestigious grant from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So very nice to speak to you today Kathleen and thank you very much for taking the time to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs and share your insights and your journey and your experience what you've learned about being a social entrepreneur. And also, I'm very much looking forward to hearing about BOMA and the great journey you've been on and successes that you've achieved, including most recently the, the Gates Foundation. It's a great privilege to speak to you today. Maybe if you could tell me a little bit about your own personal journey and background and how you came to set up BOMA
1: yeah so um i uh my background is as i uh had um a corporate background for a, a bit of time uh and then was um uh it worked with uh refugee groups uh in addition to being a safari guide for many years and in my role as a safari guide um became involved with lots of projects on the ground uh mostly from a fundraising point of view um and connecting my my travelers to to good projects. Um, and and fundraising uh, on behalf of those projects along the way. So everything from orphanages to um, to schools to wells to school fees, um, all all those kind of, of problems. Um, and then I was invited to northern Kenya uh, in the midst of a extreme drought. Um, and despite having traveled through uh, a dozen African countries, um, I, I had never witnessed suffering like what I saw in northern Kenya during this drought. And also the realization that the only solution was really uh, a humanitarian short-term response that was dropping food aid uh, on the region. And I just felt that there had to be a better solution. Um, And so I came to this work as an entrepreneur more not out of an intention to be an entrepreneur, but more seeing a problem and saying, we've got to come up with a better solution.
0: Right, right. That's interesting. I just spoke to Mark Koska, who invented the syringe that can't be used a second time, um, to stop the transfer of disease and so forth. And he said he spent three years analyzing the problem, trying to analyze, you know, and understand about syringes, how they're made and, and who uses them and how they're used and so forth. So for me, it put things in context about, you know, focusing on problems and trying to understand problems. Um, Absolutely. Before-
1: yeah. I- And and also that, you know, uh, coming at a problem uh, takes time and and thought. And and I spent two years uh, traveling around the region. I I kept coming back doing long extended visits to the region of three and four weeks. I I traveled around the area with a a driver, a security guy with an AK-47 and and an interpreter um, and spent a lot of time listening, sitting under the thorn tree, talking to women, talking to elders, talking to chiefs, trying to understand. And and I think that point of investing time in listening and investing time in coming up with a good solution, um, it's valuable and and it shouldn't be underestimated.
0: Do you think that as you spent more time, you got a deeper understanding of the problem? Can you talk about that?
1: yeah I think well, what we did along the way and and boma's program has grown rather organically um it we, along the way we also tried things, so we tried um a livestock program uh we tried a a, a women 's grants program to uh women 's groups um that are sort of these uh, uh, informal kind of collections of women in, in the villages. Um, and we tried a lot of things along the way um, that I think allowed us also to inform what was going to be a better long-term solution. Um, and and so I think that that was valuable in in trying things. It also allowed us to build relationships with the community. And one of BOMA's founding principles is a commitment to local leadership, that, that any solutions that's going to be introduced into a community comes not only from uh, extensive community consultation, uh, but also that the solution has to be implemented on the ground by local people. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why we see the success that we do. And, and I'm not sure we would have seen that if, if we hadn't invested the time and tried lots of things up
0: front. Right, right. Can you tell me about BOMA, what you're actually doing today, and the extent of your activities?
1: Yeah. So right now we're doing one program. Um, it's called the Rural Entrepreneur Access Project, uh, and we want to take that solution to scale. Um, the The pro- program is basically uh, a poverty graduation program, which means we target the most vulnerable women. Uh, in a village, uh, those that are the poorest of the poor, and we put them through a two year program with the intent to graduate them out of extreme poverty. So that two years of sequenced interventions includes a cash grant, not a loan, it's a uh, just handing over cash for women to help to start a business. We give them training, we give them mentoring, uh we um uh, and the training includes everything from financial skills to life skills um, education about the importance of human rights uh, and the education of their girl children, um, and then um, we bring them uh, into um, a formal savings program where they can save. And the goal here is is when we graduate women out of extreme poverty, we would determine that graduation based on criteria, um, a very strict criteria in food security in sustainable livelihoods, in shock preparedness, which is basically savings, and in human capital investment, which is the investment in their children. And based on that criteria, um, we're graduating an average about 93 to 94% of the women out of extreme poverty.
0: Right. Wow. That's an amazing, amazing figure, amazing result. Did you look at other solutions or other ways, I mean, of, of doing this? Are there other organizations in Africa trying to help extremely poor people? And how did they approach it? And how did you build on that? Are there other schemes that you thought would guide you? Or have you taken a different approach?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question because we have initially started out, uh, with our other founding principle that we would focus on women and particularly on building the income and savings of women. So we kind of came at this, um, in many ways from a micro enterprise, uh, kind of approach, um, in terms of helping women start businesses. So we looked at, um, microfinance programs, um, that quickly led us because no, every microfinance organization said, no, we're never going to work. In an area like where you work, the people, the population you work with is off the poverty pyramid. Um, We then looked at cash transfer programs uh, where people are actually doing cash grants and looked at uh, programs that were um, embedded in Africa that had shown some success. We looked at um, results of randomized control trials in different places. But I think ultimately, when you look at BOMA's program, what it's built on is, is a proof of concept around the global poverty graduation model and actually different adaptations of that poverty graduation model, which originally was called targeting the ultra poor, uh, that was um, uh, developed by BRAC in Bangladesh. And from that, um, there was uh, a study of eight poverty graduation programs globally, uh, six uh, in a randomized control trial With uh, 20,000 people, it took six years. And the evidence of impact was overwhelming. So BOMA's program, um, when we moved into a poverty graduation model uh, in uh, 2000, really 12 2013. That's when we really started to great, uh, get some traction. And the advantage of a poverty graduation model, uh, unlike a micro enterprise model, is that there's a defined exit strategy. There's a defined uh, a definition of success. And so BOMA's model is an adaptation of that poverty graduation model that's unique to women. Uh, and then it's also unique to, to the Sorry about that. I'll repeat that. Uh, that's unique to women and, and also unique to the arid lands of Africa, which are 40% of the African continent. So we're trying to solve one of Africa's biggest problems. We're doing it on the back of a strong global proof of concept with an unique adaption um, of that model.
0: Great. It sounds like a lot of different approaches that you've looked at and thought about and brought all together to the model you're working with today. And what's the scale of your operation today?
1: Uh right now we've been able to reach about 10,000 women and over 40 um, uh we're close to 50,000 children right now. Um, our goal is to um, uh, change the lives of 100,000 women and children by 2018. But now um, that we feel that we have strong proof of concept and evidence of impact with our model, um we we are now talking about a million. Um, how do we reach a million women and children in the arid lands? Those are that are most vulnerable primarily to drought and famine, uh, in the face of climate change. How do we build the resilience, uh, of, of those, um, of, of those people so that the next drought, uh, they're going to survive. And that's what drives us.
0: Wow. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So when you got an understanding of what the problem was and started to see some of the possible solutions and so forth, how did you fund this and how have you funded, you know, it over the whole cycle?
1: Uh, Yeah. Well, I think as most social entrepreneurs, it first starts with all your family and friends. (laughs) Um, And then you kind of build from there. And I think one of the best decisions we made was to make a strong monitoring and evaluation component of our model integral to the program. Um, As a fundraiser, I guess I needed really strong evidence of impact. If I'm going to go out to foundations and big bilateral and multilateral funding partners, I want to have a really strong evidence of impact. Um, And so I think that's probably been one of our best decisions that helped us open doors with family foundations as a next step. Um, And then probably uh, our our biggest funder who really invested in us and has been a terrific partner is um DFID um UK aid uh which was was a, a good half of our budget for a couple of years uh and and they really helped us scale it across a uh, a large region of northern kenya that's the equivalent of of mm-hmm. ireland um we are now uh, obviously then we start to d- to step up and success breeds success. Uh, when you start getting some really key funding thought partners behind you and advocating for you among other thought partners and funders, uh, it, it does get a little bit easier. Breaking in at that level is is the hardest part.
0: Wow. Wow. Absolutely. What model do you have? Do you operate? A, you're a, a charity, an NGO. Um, yeah.
1: We are a, uh, we are a 501c3 non-profit registered in the United States. And then we're a non government agent, non government organization in Kenya.
0: Right. Right. You will require funding throughout as you grow from different funders, I guess.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we're looking at three different scaling strategies that that have their own revenues associated with them. So one is build a big organization. And and for that, we need uh, organizations stepping up behind us. To uh, you know give us obviously very large grants, um, and that includes not only foundations um, but also other government agencies we 're talking to other embassies, other large multilateral organizations like the eu um but then um you know at the set we have two other scaling strategies that we're looking at um that potentially have other revenue associated with them one is to explore how we scale our model and our work through partnerships So looking at other NGOs working in many of these fragile places where of extreme poverty, and uh, there's a strong interest in a lot of other NGOs in our work. Um, So how do we work together, secure funding uh, collaboratively um, and and embed our model uh, in their program? Uh, And the third is government adoption, uh, which now there's a strong movement to get the poverty graduation model uh, adopted by governments as part of their social protection programs and poverty reduction schemes. So we are doing, um, we're about to sign an agreement with the government of Kenya to do a pilot of our model, that's going to test different elements. And and our hope and, and the hope of the government of Kenya is that um, that will lead to, to them adopting our unique adaption of the model that will allow uh, the government of Kenya to build the resilience of their most vulnerable residents. And what's interesting about that is, is that we're working with the Treasury. Who see the liability of these very vulnerable residents. We know for every dollar that we invest in resilience programming, you can offset $7 in humanitarian costs. So there's a real bottom line to this. And, you know, our conversation with treasury officials is about how do we turn these people who are liabilities into assets for the country?
0: You talked about your adaptation. Can you just go into a little bit more detail of what that is and why?
1: Yeah, so um, probably the most unique adaptation of this is that uh, for each business that we launch, it's three women that, that run the business together as opposed to launching individual women in a business. And we believe that that's a reflection of Arid Lands uh, in that these women live lives of incredible challenge. Um, and they also have responsibilities around gathering firewood, uh, tending livestock, um, getting water. Um, we want those businesses to run continuously. Um, even when women are pregnant, even when they're, you know, recovering from uh, child birth. By putting three women to run the business together, um, that allows for it to continuously generate income. Uh, so that's uh, one of our unique adaptions. The the other part is this, the, the focus on gender. Uh, there's, there's very few graduation programs out there that specifically focus on gender and also gender intentional programming. So what are the unique things that uh, when we think about training and mentoring that women face that we need to help them with um, in the process of running their own business and s- establishing their own savings, including uh, establishing their own bank account. These women are confronting lots of cultural barriers in very patriarchal societies. So our training and especially our mentoring of these women that we do for two years has to take all of that into account. Um, And by having very gender intentional programming um, and support services around that, um, we think that that is going to not only drive impact. For the women that we work with, but it's also going to drive impact for the entire communities. Um, And that's really what's at the heart of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation grant that we received, because that is the title of this grand challenge that we won. It's called Putting Women and Girls at the Center of Development. And that's absolutely key to BOMA's principle, too, that if we if we focus on women who will drive change to the next generation, um, that the entire community will benefit, that, that we, these women will become catalysts for change in these very, very poor places.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Sean's work in Strong Minds is very interesting as well, working with women at the, in society and the the, the, the impact that depression has on women and clearly on whole families as well. Very interesting.
1: Very important work.
0: Yeah, yeah, really exciting. And hopefully you'll be able to take that, you know, on as well to build it out. You mentioned the impact side of things and measuring that. And presumably that was important for the Gates Foundation. So just as a way into talking maybe about that grant, can you talk about the challenges of impact assessment and how you approached it?
1: Yeah, well, um, I think one of the um, important things that that is part of this is, is where we work. And if you look at northern Kenya, we believe what we're seeing is representative of a lot of this arid lands of Africa, which is 40 percent of the continent. Um, and that is um, low population densities, lack of infrastructure like paved roads, public transportation, banks, post office no large employers, a heavy reliance on livestock. All of those are, are unique to the arid lands. And so when we look at our m um, and we realize that we're going to have to leverage technology uh, in order to create an effective monitoring and evaluation uh, system. And so what we have invested a few years in um, building a uh, uh, a a customized relational database in Salesforce. Um, We are then collecting data in the field, um, both our baselines and our end lines for for surveys and measuring impact using laptops with Android apps that is synced to our um, cloud-based Salesforce uh, database program uh, through TerraWorks. Um, and and so we're seeing. Um, not only does that allow us to monitor the progress of our surveys and make sure that that the data we're collecting is is accurate, um, uh, and that's on the evaluation side of it. All of our mentors, who are the local people that live in the villages where we work, are equipped with uh, tablets. And so they are providing data on the businesses, on the savings groups, on the challenges they're facing, short surveys, and they're using those tablets, and we are using them as a monitoring tool. So we're seeing data in real time. Um, if, If there are problems, it sends out alerts that go to field officers. Who then can get into a vehicle um and you know getting into a land cruiser, loading it up with fuel and water it's an expedition every time we go into the field, so it's a, that's expensive so by leveraging technology, we think we're able to get better, high-quality data, we're able to uh, monitor in real time, um, and, we're al- we, and we're allowed to also test things. So, for example, in anticipation of the Gates Foundation grant, even before we knew whether we had uh, won it or not, one of the key components of that is household decision-making and how does a women's economic empowerment program impact household decision-making? Well, we are able to test Some of those questions that we wanted to ask if we were going to measure this to make sure that we had uh, the right questions and we were asking them in the right way. Um, Technology is a real game changer for us on our monitoring and evaluation front.
0: Wow. And can you tell me about the grant? How much is it? Maybe about the whole process of raising the money.
1: The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has uh, a program called Grand Challenges, Um, and there's other people that have these kind of Grand Challenges idea, and uh, the, the intent is to bring out innovation. Uh, to challenge people to submit ideas that they have that, um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation will fund. Um, and in this case, it was half a million dollars. Um, and so, uh, we submitted first round. We heard about, uh, the grand challenge. We knew it was in our sweet spot in terms of women, uh, and, uh, extreme poverty, uh, and, uh, livelihoods. Uh, so we submitted our first round. We made it through two more rounds. Um, and uh, over 1700 organizations from around the world, the largest response to a grand challenge that the Gates Foundation has ever received. And BOMA was one of 19 organizations, uh, to, to win the grand challenge. So we feel like, um, we're extraordinarily privileged to be recognized in this way. But also incredibly grateful that, that we have somebody like the Gates Foundation as a good thought partner. And they have so far, I mean, we've just got started on the grant, but they have been an extraordinary thought partner already in, in thinking through our program and also thinking about the poverty graduation model as, as is this a delivery mechanism for other solutions within these uh, very poor communities?
0: Wow, that's an extraordinary uh, statistic. <laughs> Congratulations! That's that's quite a result, extraordinary Thank you. result. And Thank uh, you. we'll give you, I guess, some security for the foreseeable future to build out at least some of these elements.
1: Yeah, security and and more importantly credibility. Um, uh, you know, to, to have been through this vetting process. Uh, and and to come out uh, uh, on the on the plus side of it, uh, when you say that name, people's <laughs> eyes open up, um, and um, so uh, obviously we want to leverage that in in the most respectful way possible. But yes, thank you. It's really we're very excited about it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Are you familiar with Kickstart International?
1: Yes, I am absolutely. I, what I was part of my listening tour is visiting their offices in the Karyobungi slums. Um, and talking to Nick and, um, actually, um, Mr. Fisher, who wrote this great article called Income is Development was my siren call to the work that, that, that we do.
0: Well, I, I did an interview with him last year and brilliant. We had a chance to listen to it. Not that it's a brilliant interview per se, but that he's a brilliant guy. So articulate. And the work they do is just remarkable.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I threw a a, we have a mutual funder and uh, we were sitting down at a lunch in Kenya one time and and I was um, sitting there talking to this really articulate gentleman. And all of a sudden I realized who it was and I just turned to him and said, you're my hero. <laughs> You're the reason that I'm doing this work. Um, it was really an exciting moment for me and a great privilege.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. What have been some of the biggest challenges for you on this journey? <laughs>
1: uh, I guess um, uh, two. Um, uh, one, where we work, um, it, it's it's a, a really tough place to work. Um, uh, you know, we're dealing with security challenges. Um, There's no infrastructure. There's drought. There's cattle raiders. Um, You're you're really out there. I travel with an armed guard, Um, and you know you learn. We we know that that's part of this work. We we want to learn how to work in the tough places, Um, and I think we've we've got that down. Um, That doesn't make it easier, though, for our staff. Um, It's the thing that keeps me up at night, always worried about our staff in the field. Um, I think the other really hard part has been witness to extreme uh, suffering. Um, That's really hard. Um, And we can't solve all the problems. Uh, We have to be really focused and focus on what we think is going to drive change the most. But that means that we also, you know, can't be the solution to many, many other problems that we see. And um, those are sometimes some really hard decisions um, that, that we have to make. Um, I, I think the other, um, you know, part of it is is that I, I wish I had thought bigger sooner. Um, you know, and uh, if I think if I had thought bigger sooner, Um, I I think if I had focused less on overhead and more on attracting the best and brightest minds to this work, um, that, you know, some of those challenges would have been less
0: sooner. That's fascinating. That's very interesting. And again, talking to Mark Koska, this idea that, you know, really looking at the the getting to the heart of the problem in the biggest way is a really powerful. It doesn't make mean that necessarily it's going to be any easier to solve the problem, but it does sometimes, I think, open up ways of, of looking at it and building a solution that can be very powerful.
1: I think, you know, to me that, uh, you know, the heart of the issue with what we're doing with, with also is that we're focusing on behavior change. Uh, And how do we change people's behavior while still allowing them to retain their dignity? Um, And you know, that's a lot of the soft, squishy stuff that you know, really sexy solutions around technology are just never going to solve. Um, And I, I think I think a lot about that, and and that. Um, is something we continue to think about. And, and I think when you make behavior change, because at the end of the day, ending poverty is about changing behavior. So if we look at behavior change, um, really what we're talking about is them adapting to a changing climate. Uh, and it's not because they're necessarily doing anything wrong. It's that they need to build new skills. They need to confront front some cultural practices, which are hard as women. And If we don't do that, if we look at this problem on a very large scale, um, I sometimes make the comparison to what's happening in Syria right now. Syria is a very complicated um, situation, and there's a multiple reasons why it's happening. But it was preceded by five years of drought, where literally millions of people flooded into the cities, and there was no work for them to be done. They abandoned their traditional way of life in the rural areas. And if there is a massive drought in Africa, in this 40% of the con- continent, we are looking at massive migration to urban areas. And so when we think about our problem on this very large scale, I believe what we need to do is focus on the principle as you help people where they live. You don't try to figure out the solution when they're they're flooding into to, um, slums. Um, you help people make good choices and make and adapt and learn new behaviors when they're surrounded by their families. They're surrounded by their culture. They're surrounded by what's familiar. And you bring them along on this journey, which is why we have this two year program. And that's really at the heart of of how we think about this problem.
0: I can see exactly what you're saying. I guess the other side of the coin is that reach out into these communities is a challenge in terms of just the fragmented without infrastructure hard to access and so forth and on the other hand you're presumably hoping to get some kind of scale and and you know make what you do have the biggest impact possible
1: yeah we don't have a choice uh you know these areas um these rural areas in the arid lands of africa are where the deep pockets of extreme poverty are these are last mile places and if we truly have a commitment to the sustainable development goals, which said we're gonna say we're going to end extreme poverty uh by twenty thirty, um, we've got to figure out solutions to these areas.
0: What advice would you give? I mean, how long have you been working on the field now? How long have you been <laughs>
1: Uh, it, well, I, I started my journey in 2005. Uh, and so we became officially a nonprofit in the United States in 2006. Uh, so we, I've been at it for 10 years.
0: <laughs> wow, that's a journey. What if you had to distill two or three bits of insight or lesson for other change makers, social innovators on their journey?
1: Well, I I, I guess I would tell them that uh, this is a lot harder than you think. I think it takes grit. uh, It takes determination and tenacity. It takes a ton of energy. You have to be incredibly optimistic in the face of multiple obstacles. And you have to have a toughness uh, to not take all the no's that people give you personally. That's been a hard one for me. Um, I think, though, um, at the end of the day, I mean, I didn't start out saying I want to be a social entrepreneur. Uh, I, I'm older. Uh, I didn't take any classes in how to be a social entrepreneur. I, I came at this with, with trying to solve a problem. And I think that the most important part in all of this is passion uh for the work and for the solutions that you're trying to bring. And in order to do that, you have to have a really strong moral compass. Um, and and I know that, um, you know, I'm building a big organization. We're also talking about human resources and budgets and hiring and all these other technology and all these other things. But if I reconnect to that moral compass and and remember why we're in this work, uh, um, I make better decisions um, and help the organization determine their priorities, which I see as my role as the CEO. Um, So to me, if we had, if I had to pick one thing for a social entrepreneur is have a really, really strong, strong uh, moral compass.
0: Yes, I can see what you're saying. It sounds so important because you'd be easily overwhelmed with all of the other elements in this sheer scale of it all. Have there been organizations that have helped you along the way? And what about getting building kind of teams or resources outside the organization to support you?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've had really terrific thought partners uh, in terms of funding um, funders who uh, ask us really hard questions. And um, I would encourage every social entrepreneur to, to not back away from those hard questions that your funders are asking. They have made us better because of what we do. Um, they have also connected us to other organizations doing different components um, of the work that we're doing. Um, from um, you know the Salesforce relational database that we have. We worked with Vera Solutions. Um uh, Which is a, a group of MIT grads that that have figured out a way to customize salesforce to help nonprofit organizations driving change. Um, we looked at other cash transfer programs uh, around the world uh, we 're working very closely with brac right now, the original um, organization that started the poverty graduation model. Um, they are a partner in um, uh, doing the pilot with the government of Kenya. Um, DFID, um, uh, which was just an extraordinary funding partner, but also helped us connect with other people that are looking at arid land solutions. Um, other organizations that work in arid lands or work with, with women are, are also an inspiration for us.
0: Brilliant. Brilliant. And I final question that is, what's your vision for the next 10 years? Where do you want to be?
1: Uh, I want to see us reach a million uh, women and children. I want to see us working in multiple countries. Uh, I want to see us really continuing to drive impact uh, and making that impact uh, stronger. Um, and I want to see um, the end ex- of extreme poverty in my lifetime. And that's not an improbable goal. What we're basically saying with that is we need enough to be able to feed that people need enough to feed and clothe themselves. That's not a high bar. That's totally doable. That's pennies, uh, and we can do it. And um, if if I didn't have the moral imagination to believe that's possible, if if I didn't see the success that we see every day, I wouldn't be saying that. But I, I think it is possible, and, and that's our vision.
0: Well, I wish you the very best of success and good fortune with this project and to realize your goals. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you, Kathleen, and to hear your story and and a very, very moving and powerful one it is. So thank you very much. We'll be in touch again.
1: Thank you so much, Fergal. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for your thoughtful questions.
0: Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.